Um, I read an article this week uh, in The Guardian by a journalist named Will Storr. And uh, Will Storr wrote this article about a group of people uh, who live in a town in Micronesia. Micronesia is uh, a set of islands that's east of the Philippines and north of Australia. And uh, one of these islands is called Pompeii. In Pompeii, they have an annual feast. And at that annual feast, uh, they give uh, a prize to the person who can grow the biggest yam. Maybe you call them sweet potatoes. Will Storr in his article called them yams. I kind of like yams. And whoever had the biggest one would be considered number one and be praised by the chief. And so throughout the year, uh, many of the men would grow uh, up to 50 yams. They'd grow these yams in these secret, remote, overgrown plots of land. And they'd creep out of their beds at 2 a.m. to take care and tend to their yams. And these yams would grow for up to 10 years. And at that mark, they could get a yam that was 13 feet long. 200 pounds. And it would take 12 people to put the yam on a stretcher to carry it to the feast where they would be deemed as number one. Sounds like a silly game, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. You're, you're right, Lisey. I, I doubt you're growing yams. If you do, you're probably not letting them get that big. And the only reason that you would grow a big yam is really just for a joke. But what I would suggest is that we all play games. And they're really equally as silly when you stop and really think about them. And the games are really about achieving status, about being considered as number one. So I think we play political games. We play political games in order to show us who's the most principled conservative or who's the most compassionate liberal. We play religious games to see who's the most virtuous. We play social media games to get followers and likes. We play gender and race games where we compete to be the most diverse or inclusive. We play nationalist games to see who's the most patriotic. And we play family games. We play family games to see who can have the most kids, to see who can have the best behaved kids, the most academically outstanding kids who go to prestigious universities and get impressive degrees. We play family games where we want our kids to walk with Jesus to make us look good. We play family games because we want our kids to grow up and get married and have lots of well-behaved, athletic, academically oriented grandchildren. <laughs> and all of them have the same basic elements, don't they? Our groups are competing with rival groups for status and acclaim from our co-players. And preachers aren't immune to these games, by the way. I'm meeting with five pastors this week that I've been meeting with for the last uh, few years. And one of the best things I've loved about this group is that for these other five pastors, I literally have no idea how big any of their churches are. We've never talked about it. We've spent hundreds of hours together. And I don't know how big their church is. But for pastors, that's what we talk about, how big's your church you can play games about how many people complimented me about my sermon, how many people downloaded my sermon. You can play games with, did your church come back better than ever after COVID? And these games really do form our identity. 
I think we become the games that we play. So when we encounter Jesus, we've got to be careful what we expect Jesus to do with our games. A lot of times, I think we expect to enlist Jesus on our team to help us compete so we can win. The problem is that Jesus is not someone to recruit. He is someone who flips the tables on us. And instead of getting him on our team, he gets us on his team. And when he does that, he confronts us about the games that we've been playing. And you see this dynamic at play with a man in Luke 18. And Jesus confronts him about his game. Let's start in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept for my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. So all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with God, with man, is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The word of the Lord. Do you see this guy? He's a real winner. I mean, he's a dead ringer. He's the kind of guy you'd want to be neighbors with. He's the kind of guy you'd want your daughter marrying. I mean, look what's so great about him. I mean, verse 18 says he's a ruler. Now, we're unclear exactly what kind of ruler, whether it's religious or political or some other kind of ruler. But he's a ruler, meaning he has power, he has influence. Verse 23, we learn that he's very rich. And then there's an account similar to this one that we find in Luke 18, one in Matthew and one in Mark. And what we learn in the Matthew account is that he's also young, meaning he's got much potential. And he's attractive physically. So he's a rich, young ruler. That's what the passage is often referred to as. But I'd like to throw in a fourth description for him. You see it in verse 21, where he said he's been a good guy. He's not committed adultery or lied or stolen and the like. So not just he's a rich young ruler, he's the good rich young ruler. He just seems so put together, doesn't he? But there's something gnawing at him. Gnawing at him internally, and that's why he seeks out Jesus. And so he seeks out Jesus and he asks him, The most basic of all questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So essentially he's asking him, how do I become a Christian? I mean, this is a layup for Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus should be able to take this one and slam it home. And so Jesus responds and he quotes half of the commandments, asks him if he's kept them. And the five that he chooses all have to do with our relationships with one another. See, in the Ten Commandments, four of them are about our relationship with God, the first four, and the last six are about our relationships with one another. Jesus chooses commandments five to nine. He chooses the one about adultery and murder and lying and stealing and honoring parents. And Jesus knows that the rich young ruler already feels assured about where he stands on these five fronts. So it doesn't catch Jesus off guard when the man says, I've kept all of these since my youth. And depending how you define those, he may very well have. And so what Jesus does is that he ninjas him. Did you see it? Jesus isn't won over by his flattery. I mean, the rich young ruler calls him good teacher. You see that Jesus isn't impressed by his appearance or his wealth or his power. So when Jesus ninjas him and he exposes his folly, he tells him that if he wants to have treasure in heaven, if he wants to eliminate the gnawing in his soul, if he wants to follow Jesus, he's got to obey that first commandment, the most foundational commandment, the one that's hardest to keep. The first commandment says, have no other gods before me. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be more Christian than you are Buddhist or more Christian than you are Muslim or more Christian than you are Jewish. What it means is that you must have God at the core of your life. He's the one you love above all things. He's the sun in your life's universe. Your allegiance to him is where everything else flows out of. That's what it means to have no other gods for the one true God. This is an interesting strategy that Jesus employs here. Because what Jesus could have done is he could have made him feel really guilty. He could have said, all right, let's take adultery, brother. It's not just about not having intercourse with a woman who's not your wife. It's also deeper than that. It means that you can't sexually please yourself. It means that you can't sexually fantasize about someone in your imagination. He could have shown him that it's not just deeper than he probably had thought previously, but he could have showed him that there's a positive side to this commandment, meaning that sex is to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in marriage. That's just adultery. He could have done that with adultery. Then he could have done the same thing and showed how it's deeper and positive when it comes to lying or stealing or murder or honoring his parents. But Jesus' strategy here is to go for the first commandment. So he goes for the jugular. And he wants the rich young ruler to see that he is not just ignorant and in need of teaching. He wants the rich young ruler to see that he is a sinner in need of saving. He wants the rich young ruler to see that eternal life is not something that you achieve, but it's something that you receive. See, the rich young ruler didn't have any problems with submitting to Jesus as his teacher. And the rich young ruler, what we can see here is that he's genuine about his desire to obey the commands. But what you do if you just follow the commands, it just makes you a Pharisee. It just makes you a religious person. And Jesus wants the rich young ruler to see that if he wants to be a Christian, 
that he has to repent. And he has to repent of how he uses the good things in his life. And that's what makes Christianity so daggum hard. That Christianity is mainly about repenting of how we've misused the good things in our life. In Christianity, we usually have this misconception that it really just becomes this new status game. It's not about growing yams. This one actually matters. And we set out our own rules for the competition about reading the Bible, about prayer, about getting your theology right, about coming to worship weekly. It's about having a small group. But what Christianity is actually about, it's about losing, not winning. It's about handing over the good things in your life, the things that we've won playing all our old games. And for this man, the rich young ruler, this good things was his money. What is it for you? What has been the thing that you've built your whole identity around? Is it your family? Now, family is a good thing. And you'll likely never get called out by anyone for making your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children a high priority, especially if you stay in church circles. But Jesus might just ask you to hand it over. Maybe it's your job. You might know that it's your job that when you're on LinkedIn, you get jealous every time someone else gets a new job and you somehow think that you deserve it. Ring a bell for anyone? Maybe it's your intellect. that You built your whole identity around your ability to solve problems, to think critically, to accurately diagnose. And you think life can be solved by just your time and your attention. Put your identity around it. Maybe it's your charisma that allows you to connect with all different kinds of people. But maybe it's your money. Maybe you're like the rich young ruler. I mean, think about the rich young ruler. I'm going to assume he's telling the truth, that he's really not stolen this money from other people. This isn't Zacchaeus here. He's not been running a prostitution ring to get rich because he's been following the commandment not to commit adultery. He's not a murderer for hire. He's not being deceptive or lying and accruing his wealth. He's come by his wealth honestly. But Jesus still asks him to give it to the poor. And when I look out at you, I doubt that most of you have come by your money dishonestly. But Jesus isn't just after those who have gotten their money unjustly. He's also not just after those who have a ton of money. He's after anyone who's tried to use money to get something that only God can give. That's who he's after. And maybe the thing that you've tried to get from money is you've tried to get pleasure. And many times we want money to help us feel better. So we shop, we take trips, we drive luxury cars, we eat out a lot. Or we save it all up for Christmas and we blow it. Yet we all know the feeling of coming back from vacation. We all know the feeling of getting to New Year's and we're like, man, that trip wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Christmas was kind of a letdown even though we spent a lot of money on it. 
Why is that? Well, it's because real lasting pleasure can only be found in God. You're looking to money to give you something only God can give. But maybe it's security. Maybe that whole thing I just said, you're sitting there that whole time like, oh yeah, those people. I budget. I'm eliminating my debt. I'm saving for retirement. Well, what is that really all about? It's about security. You're trying to get something from money that only God can give you. See, he alone is our provider. And if he feeds the birds of the air, then you and I can trust him to provide for us as well. Well, maybe it's not pleasure, maybe it's not security, maybe it's kingdom building. And kingdom building is when you want to have cash on hand so you can be ready to jump on a deal. Maybe it's a property, maybe it's a business. So you keep this whole pot of money that's not necessarily retirement, it's not necessarily for your pleasure, but it's to feed this dark ambition in you and building a kingdom of assets. So instead of being generous, there's this need to hold on to more and more and more so we can pounce on a deal because of your ambition. See, regardless of how you're looking to money to save you, Jesus tests us with a very simple command. Give it all to the poor. And when he calls the rich and ruler to give it all to the poor, he's not saying that he can purchase his salvation. What he is saying is that it's going to take him giving his money to the poor to dethrone his idol. And that's part of what's going to take for many of you to dethrone your idol too. You're going to have to honestly ask yourself a very tough question. How much is Jesus worth to me? Man, that's tough. In fact, Jesus thinks it's impossible. He says it's as hard as someone who's rich. And the biblical definition of risk is anyone with disposable income for spending or savings. That's the definition of risk. Anyone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God is impossible. Just as it's impossible for a camel, the biggest animal that anyone in Jesus' audience had ever seen with their eyes, to get through the eye of a needle. So how is it possible? How does Jesus become worth more to us than money? Oh, it's about seeing how much we're worth to Jesus. Do you see how much this rich young ruler is worth to Jesus? Well, one, again, one of the other accounts of Mark's account. While Jesus tells the man to sell everything, the account of Mark says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus knows that this guy's made an idol out of money. Jesus knows that this man has no clue about how the moral law of the Old Testament actually works. He knows that the rich young ruler is just trying to flatter him. And most of all, what Jesus knows is that the rich young ruler is going to reject him because he loves his money too much. So you would expect Jesus to look on him lovingly only after he's committed to give his money away. 
But Jesus looks on him lovingly before, even though, as far as we know, he never does. How can this be? Brothers and sisters, it's grace. See, Jesus loves this greedy, powerful, put-together man, even though he's an unrepentant sinner. And you know what's true of all unrepentant sinners? They're all sad. Do you see that in our text? This man considers Jesus' offer, but he rejects it. And here's why all unrepentant sinners are sad. It's because they built their life on something that isn't working. They may not admit it, but they know it deep down. I wasn't with you guys last week because Jen and I took a little trip to Florida. Nothing better than Florida in February. I mean, Florida in July, never. But Florida in February is amazing. Maybe better than Florida in February is the fact that it was just me and Jenna. Kids were with their grandparents. They were out of school last week. And when Jen and I get away, just the two of us, I love to stay as far away as possible from my phone. I mean, to me, that's my definition of vacation. How few times a day can I look at my phone? And when we go on vacation, just two of us, I refuse to meet strangers. It's like the, the place in my life where I'm least friendly. I don't want to meet anyone from the state of Virginia or New York or Ohio or Georgetown, Kentucky. I don't want to meet anybody when I'm on vacation, so I don't talk to anybody. Honestly, I barely even talk to Jenna. It's not because I don't want to be with Jenna. I love just being with her. We don't have to talk. We just enjoy being together. And I love to be quiet and read. And I don't read preacher kind of stuff usually. This time I read an autobiography by a guy named Jerry West. Jerry West, he's 83 years old. He's a retired uh, athlete, played in the NBA for 14 years. He made the all-star team all 14 times. He won one championship as a player. He won eight as an executive. And I, what I found most interesting about him is that he's from rural West Virginia, yet he spent his entire career as a player and pretty much as an executive in Los Angeles. Rural West Virginia to Los Angeles. Interesting. But what I found most interesting is what he writes at the end of his career in his autobiography. And here's what he says. He said, I still wish and will always wish that my playing career would have caused me less anguish and brought me a greater level of satisfaction. See, Jerry West had built his identity around basketball and it left him very sad and I think that if you were to interview the rich young ruler a day after he had encountered Jesus and they had this conversation you would have found a very sad man and this word that Luke uses here in verse 23 for sad means deeply grieved or very sorrowful it's a rare word in the New Testament it's only used three other times and two of those three times happened in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Where it says that Jesus is sad. And he's sad because he knows that Jesus knows that he's going to lose his spiritual center. He's going to lose his sense of identity. He's going to lose his very self. And that's what money meant to the ruler. And the thought of losing it caused him to be deeply grieved and very sorrowful. 
And so for Jesus, that's what the Father meant to him. That was his center. And he gave it up because you were worth it to him. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he lost connection that he had had with his Father from all eternity. He had no idea what life would be without that connection. And their fellowship was severed on the cross. And when Jesus was in in the garden, he was anticipating this fracture just days ahead. So for Jesus, this security, this pleasure, this ambition, this lifeline are all wrapped up in the Father. So why would Jesus do this? He did it so that you could know what it was like to have the Father at the center of your life. And oh, it's worth it. You see it in verses 29 and 30, he's trying to incentivize us. He's trying to motivate us. And he says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that we gain more than we give up when we dethrone our idols. And this promise means that you're constantly getting a rich dividend while your initial investment never decreases. Jesus is saying that giving up our money, our intellect, our charisma, our family, it's the best short-term and long-term investment that we can possibly make. So if you give up your home, you get Jesus as your refuge, your fortress, your shelter. When you lose your family members because they don't understand why they're not at the center of your life anymore, you get a new whole family in the, in the people of God. When you give up all your money, you get Jesus as the treasure of your soul. See, brothers and sisters, when Jesus threatens to dethrone your idol, give it to him. Or you will live in sadness all your days. You can have your doubts. You'll occasionally have regrets. But you'll get him. And it's worth it. Just ask Ellie. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are uh, holding on to things that don't really matter. We can laugh at people who grow yams. But, Lord, when we really consider... What is your asking us to give up? We'll see you. We'll see you, the one who we gain. In Jesus' name, amen.